Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Turn now this morning to Proverbs chapter 3, and I encourage you to turn there with me as we're concluding a three-week brief series on money and giving. I'll remind you why I am coming to this series. I hope that this series has been an opportunity for each of us to check our hearts against God's Word with the goal and the, the desire that as a congregation we would be characterized by joyful generosity for the kingdom of God. And particularly as we enter the coming months and conversation about our capital campaign, that our hearts would be guarded against many temptations that can come when we talk about money together. So far we've seen Jesus address our attitude towards money. As he called us in Matthew 6, in light of Christ's salvation, to pursue treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. And then we also saw from Paul's words, which addressed our motivations from 2 Corinthians 8. We're reminded that God does not care about our giving in and of itself. He wants our hearts. And then, because of that, our motivation for giving matters. As Paul called us to give generously, eagerly, and freely as instruments of God's grace because of what Christ has done for us out of our love for God and for His people. This is what we've seen so far, but when we think about the practical, concrete decisions about money and and giving, there's often one other roadblock, aside from our attitude toward money or or our motivations for giving, that confronts us, and and that, that practical consideration is a matter of trust. And that's where Proverbs 3 comes in. So if you would, read along with me Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. This is God's word. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word. We come again to it expecting to hear from you. And we pray that your spirit who inspired these words would now speak to our hearts and apply it to us for the sake of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. I wonder if we were to do sort of a a congregational exercise of brainstorming and writing down what we would consider the top ten most known and quoted Bible verses in all of Scripture. My guess is many of us would name John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Maybe you'd name Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Maybe you'd name Jeremiah 29.11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. 
But my guess is many of us would put down the verses we just read, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your hearts and lean not on your own understanding. In fact, uh, one site, Bible Study Tools, a popular online uh, study tool, compiled the list of the top 10 verses that were read on their site this year, 2021. And Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 came in at number 6. You know, we know these words. They're familiar to us. But my guess is that many of us read verses 5 and 6 and then stop. And that, of course, is the problem with all of the most popular and well-known Bible verses. They're single verses, and then we don't get the whole context. How many of us know Proverbs 3.7 or read Proverbs 3.9? But this passage that Solomon gives us actually holds together. These verses that follow... The well-known ones give us practical examples of how trust in the Lord plays out in real life. In fact, I think if we were to summarize Solomon's main point here, we could say that trusting the Lord is not just an attitude that we should have in the midst of uncertainty. Trust in the Lord is a commitment of our hearts that leads us to act differently in specific situations. And one of those situations that Solomon addresses is their use of money. And so in our time together this morning, I want us to first see Solomon's summons to trust the Lord. Then I want to see Solomon's examples of what trust in the Lord looks like in real life. And then I want us to see some principles for giving that come from Solomon's words. So let's, let's start, let's dig in by looking at Solomon's summons to trust the Lord in verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Now, to trust someone is to rely on them. It's to believe them and depend on what they say. It's to give up our self-reliance and act in confidence, relying on their guidance, on their promises, on their protection, or their support. I think we know what it is to trust someone when we believe what they say and say, yes, I can generally have confidence in what they tell me and follow their advice or instruction. And here, we're called to trust in the Lord with all our heart, which means, as one commentator put it, everything we are and all that we have must be rested on the Lord. Of course, this kind of dependence on the Lord is going to mean what Solomon says next, that we will not lean on our own understanding. Because to lean here is to support ourselves with, it's to throw ourselves on. And to lean on our own understanding is to rely on what seems best to us, to trust our judgment or our instincts rather than anyone else's. And my guess is we all have known those people who are strongly independent and say they can't trust anyone. If it doesn't make sense to them, they're not doing it. That's to rely on or lean on our own understanding. I think if we want a picture of this verse, all you have to do is think back to early season sports practice. If you were ever on a sports team, before you start fine-tuning your skills, you do a lot of condition training. And maybe you had the terrible experience of doing those awful exercises, wall sits. And a wall sit is where you lean your back against the wall and you sink down into a sitting position supported by nothing except your increasingly burning quad muscles. And I think if you think of sitting on a chair versus doing a wall sit, you have a great picture of what Solomon's calling us to here. To trust in each situation in life 
in the Lord, to rest on the Lord, to entrust ourselves to Him like we entrust ourselves to a chair when we sit down and it supports us and holds us up in its strength, not our own, rather than trying to depend on our own understanding in an attempt to support ourselves in a lifelong wall sit. Well, then verse 6, Solomon goes on and adds a third comment. He says, in all your ways acknowledge him. Translated literally, this verse is saying, in all your ways know the Lord. And the point is that in all our decisions, in each area of life, we are to do them in fellowship with the Lord and in dependence upon what he has told us in his word. We know, picture this with a child, for a child to acknowledge his parents and his decisions is to ask his parents advice and to to make them in consult with the parents, to trust what his parents say and to follow their instruction. In the same way, I think, when I face uncertainty or, or difficulty in a decision, to know God in that moment is to remember who he is and what he has said in his word and to draw near to him in prayer so that we proceed in dependence upon His commands, His promises, and His presence with us. In reality here, Solomon is is saying the same thing to us in three different ways. Do trust in the Lord with all your hearts. Don't rely on your own understanding. Do approach every decision and situation in fellowship with the Lord and based on the knowledge of the Lord and His Word. And if you do, there is a promised blessing that the Lord will make straight your paths. And the straight paths is a beautiful picture in God's word of blessing. Straight paths is not a promise that everything will go as we wish, nor is it a promise that we will not have suffering. But straight paths is the result of wisdom and honoring the Lord, such that the consequences of foolishness will be removed. Those consequences of our folly that become roots and stones in our way are removed. And it's also a promise that the Lord will preserve us to the end in His care. Straight paths is the blessing that comes when we trust the Lord with our whole heart and lean not on our own understanding. And if I could just pause right here, I think the principle that Solomon is articulating for us is this. In life, what are you leaning on? Is it your instincts and your understanding? Or is it the character of God and the Word of God? Because that's the question that each one of us must answer. You know, when we face suffering or grief, loss or confusion, when we face hardships that we can't explain and we don't know why the Lord would allow them, the burning question facing us is, can we trust the character of God? And I think the reality is that most often when someone decides that they do not believe in the Bible or believe in the God of the Bible, or in the message of the gospel from the Bible. It is usually not because of some facts they decide that are wrong. It is because they decide they cannot trust God. But if God can be trusted even when we don't understand and can't see how things are going to work out, we are standing on a solid rock that cannot be moved. But if God cannot be trusted unless everything He does makes sense to me, then I am mired in a sinking sand. And Scripture, Scripture demonstrates again and again in suffering and sin and loss that God is faithful to His Word and to His character and His promises. The entire Old Testament is is a 
repeated case study of the faithfulness of God and of His character. And then we come to the New Testament and find that this God has even gone to the extent of sending His own Son to death for our sake to save us from our sins and bring us to eternal life if we will but put our faith in Him. And so over and over again we see God proving that He can be trusted. And that's the question we have to answer right up front. Do we trust the Lord with all our hearts? Or are we still at bottom, relying on our own understanding and what makes sense to us? So this is Solomon's summons to trust the Lord with our whole heart and lean not on our own understanding. But then Solomon doesn't just state this as a principle. In verses 7 through 10 now, he comes to give us examples of what it looks like to trust the Lord in real life. The first example comes in verses 7 and 8. Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now here, we're not talking about situations that maybe are matters of of wisdom and are difficult to know what to do. We're talking about times in life where God's Word tells us one thing, but we can't see how it will work out if we follow God's Word. And so we're tempted to do something else that makes more sense to us. And what Solomon is saying is in those situations, we are to obey God's Word and trust Him, not go with our own understanding. And the Old Testament's filled with object lessons here, isn't it? Maybe you could look to Numbers 13 where God says specifically, Israel, go into the promised land. Take it. I will give it to you. But Israel goes in and and they see giants there and, and tall, walled cities. And they look at themselves and think, well, obviously we can't take this land. And so they rely on their own understanding and they do not go into the land as God told them to do. Or maybe Jeremiah 42 with the Babylon, Babylonian army threatening Jerusalem. The commanders come to Jeremiah and say, pray to the Lord for us that we might know what we should do. So Jeremiah prays and the Lord says, stay in the city and I will bless you. So Jeremiah brings the word to the commanders and they say to him, you're lying. God wouldn't say that. It's obvious we can't beat the Babylonians. And so they leave the city anyways and suffer the consequences. Now, of course, we can look back and heap some criticism on Israel for doing what was right in their own eyes and not trusting the Lord. But before we do, we should probably consider the ways that we look at God's Word and its application in our own lives at times and say things like, well, surely God God wouldn't expect me to do that in this situation. Or, but that would be so difficult It would be too hard for me to do. And we lean on our own understanding instead of trusting the Lord. And so this is the first practical example Solomon gives that we are always to obey the word of God when we have commands from our Lord. But then in verses 9 and 10, Solomon gives us another practical example of trusting the Lord. He says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. For then your barns will be filled and your vats bursting with plenty. And I think we'd have to agree, most of us, that obeying God's command to give the first fruits of our money to Him is one of the most practical examples that requires me to trust the Lord and not my own understanding. Specifically, Solomon calls us to honor the Lord by giving Him the first fruits of our produce. Now, the first fruits were the first and best portion of whatever Israel earned. Of course, for them, it was their crops and their flocks. Deuteronomy 26, God tells Israel when they come into the promised land, they are to bring the first fruits 
of the produce of the land to the Lord as an expression of worship and thanksgiving for God's goodness and saving them from Egypt and fulfilling His promises and giving them this land that flows with milk and honey. But it wasn't just giving the first fruits that first year. Exodus 23:19 instructed Israel, "The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord as an offering to the Lord, who has graciously given them all things." Now, of course, some would have more, some would have less, but the Lord graciously takes that into account. It's not a set amount of money, but a percentage of all that they earn. Deuteronomy 14.22 spells it out specifically. He says, At the end of the harvest, you are to give one-tenth of the full yield of your harvest and of your flocks year by year. Now, I realize that most of us don't grow crops or raise flocks today, but I think the parallel is clear and the principle of what God was telling His people is clear. Israel was to give the best of what they received. It was the first fruits of their income, the first portion of what they earned was to be given to the Lord. They were also to give consistently one-tenth of their income year by year. Each year, they were to give that time. And then they were also to give sacrificially. After all, when we think of crops and flocks, or when I think of sheep and corn or something, I might think of the garden in my backyard or the, the, the chickens we have or something like that, but that's not what it was for Israel. This was their wealth. Think about how it was, uh, Abraham's wealth was summarized. It was in terms of his flocks and his herds. This was their income. It was also their security. What would protect them against drought or famine? It was their crops and their flocks. So for Israel to give the first portion of their crops and flocks to the Lord was to sacrifice the first portion right up front to their God. That, of course, was costly. But think of what David said in 2 Samuel 24. He said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. After all, if my giving, if my offering has little impact on me or is only from the extras, in what sense can it really be considered worship? You see, Israel was to give the first portion of their money. They were to give consistently a tenth of their income year by year. And they were to give sacrificially to the Lord. And Solomon says that bursting barns are the result of living in sacrificial trust and obedience by honoring the Lord with our wealth. Now, we might say, well, hold on a second here. Is, is Solomon saying if I, if I tithe and give more, then the result's going to be wealth pouring out in my barns? And of course not. That's not the point. After all, if that was the way God set things up, then giving would not honor the Lord. It would simply be a wise investment strategy. I give more to get more. Where would be the honor or the trust in that? No, nor is the point that as long as you tithe, you won't face suffering. That's not the point either. In this world, we will face trouble. But the point, so what is the point? The point is that if we honor the Lord with the wealthy, the the first portion of our income as He calls us to, that obedience, giving that to Him which He has required, will not leave us needy because He has promised to bless our obedience. Now this can be a challenge for us. It was a challenge for Israel too. You may remember in the book of Malachi when, when Israel was facing a time when they were not receiving God's blessings like they expected and so they stopped giving to the Lord. But in Malachi 3.10, God said to them, Stop robbing me. These are the things that are mine by right as your God and not to give them is to rob me. 
Bring the full tithe into my house, he says. Put me to the test. You don't see how exactly you're going to have enough, and so you don't think you can obey what I've asked you to do? Put me to the test and see if I do not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now again, hear what he said. Not put me to the test, and if you give, I'll give you all the wealth you want. He says, there won't be need if you give what I've asked you to give me. Obedience, trust me. Obeying me by giving me the tithe will not put you in need. See, when money feels tight, in our own understanding, it often feels like giving to the Lord would put our barns or our budgets at risk. But God has commanded us to give Him the first portion of our income. And so for Israel and for us, obeying the Lord by giving to Him the first portion, the tithe of our income, is a perfect example of trusting in the Lord with all our hearts and leaning not on our own understanding. So this was the second practical example that Solomon gave of his principle of trust in the Lord. Well, let me step back then in in our time that we have and, and consider three principles then from Solomon's words that should guide our giving. And I think the first principle is really quite straightforward. We must start by obeying God's commands. Well, when it comes to our money, what has God commanded? While God calls us to give eagerly and generously, we saw this in 2 Corinthians last week, that because of what God has done for us, we ought to overflow in generosity. And so there's no limit to how much we ought to give. But he has commanded us to give the tithe, one-tenth of our income, the first and best of what we earn, regardless of how much that is. And I might add, regardless of our age. So if you're in high school or elementary school and you earn income, I think this applies to you as well. He calls us to honor him with the first portion of our wealth. And now again, God does not promise, if you tithe, I will meet your desires and all of your budget categories that you would like to have. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, if you tithe, times of suffering will not come. He doesn't say that. What he says is, if you obey me, you will not be in need. And I think this is why giving is a matter of trust for us. Because we are still tempted to say, once I have enough and I can see how my budget will work out, then I will tithe. Whereas God calls us to commit to obeying Him and giving Him the first portion of our money and trusting that He will provide enough for us when we do. Now, I I feel, as a pastor, like I I have to say, I realize it can seem self-serving for a pastor to talk about the command to tithe. But as I pray about this and reflect throughout the week, I sincerely believe my desire has nothing to do with Westminster's budget and everything to do with desiring us as a congregation not to rob God of what is rightfully His as the King of the universe who has given us everything we have. And my desire is for each of us to experience the joy of trusting God and seeing Him provide as He has promised to do if we obey Him. That's what it looks like to trust the Lord. So first principle is obey God's clear command and give God the first portion, the tithe of our income. And don't wait on our own understanding to see if we have everything worked out first. 
But what about beyond this? What about giving beyond the tithe? What about giving more for missions or for those who are in need or for opportunities to God's kingdom like we saw in 1 Chronicles 29 or 2 Corinthians 8? How should we think through that? Is there a principle for that in these words? And I think there is. And I think the principle God's word gives us is that we are to give sacrificially with prayer but not presumption. Sacrificially with prayer and not presumption. And and here's what I mean by that. Proverbs 3 here tells us that in all our ways we are to acknowledge God. Or in all our ways we are to know Him. That is, we're to make all of our decisions in fellowship with Him, in prayer with Him, and in the knowledge of His character and His Word. And I think that's what we saw last week in 1 Chronicles 29 and 2 Corinthians 8. David, Israel, and the Macedonians gave freely beyond the tithe and even beyond what Paul imagined as they pondered God's self-giving love and salvation. They remembered His character, they remembered His salvation, and they longed to give more above and beyond. And they did so, but they did not do so with presumption. Do you remember how Paul said, My command is not that you give to such an extent that you now are a burden to others. We are to give generously, but not with presumption such that we become a burden. So I think we're to give with prayer sacrificially based on the character of God, acknowledging Him in all of our decisions, but not with presumption. Now let let me illustrate this with the story of Scott Lewis. Scott was at a conference where Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, was speaking. And in that conference, Bill Bright challenged those who were in, ten- in attendance there to pray that God might enable them to give a million dollars over the course of their life. Well, that's quite the statement, isn't it? Now, Scott thought this was preposterous, so he went to Bill and explained that he made less than $50,000 a year with his small business. Bill asked him, well, how much do you give? And Scott, with a little bit of pride in his heart, said, well, last year I gave $17,000, or 35% of my income. Without missing a beat, Bill responded, why don't you pray that God might enable you to give $50,000 next year? Now, Scott said, well, that's, that's more than I make. But as he thought about it, he and his wife prayed And they decided to go into the year praying that God might enable them to give $50,000 that year. Over the course of the next year, God provided for them in significant and often surprising ways. And on December 31st, they were able to make a final gift, bringing their total to $50,000. I've read story after story like this, but I need to give a caution, right? Because if I share this story as a challenge, just pray and expect God to give you financial windfall, that would be unbiblical and wrong. But notice three things about Scott's story. First, Scott and his wife took time to pray, acknowledging God in all of their ways. What they did, they did with prayer. Second, Scott and his wife waited to see if this was God's will or their will. They did not enter January 1st saying, we're given $50,000 this year, so God, we're expecting you to make it up. They didn't sit down and start writing checks for $50,000 and and expect God would, would give them what they wanted. No, they stepped out in faith with their prayer and with their desire and then gave as the Lord provided, following His lead, so that on the last day of the year, He provided what they needed to make that final gift. But they followed His lead, not theirs. But third, and I think this is the one that presses my heart most, 
Notice that their desire was to give, not to have. They prayed that the Lord would enable them to give more, not have more. See, the way I think about these things or pray about these things sometimes usually goes something like this. Like, Lord, if you would give me 20,000 more dollars next year, I would give you 10 of it. Well, then that gives me 10 more, right? To add a few budget categories and give some margin and, and a little extra security. That's not what Scott said. They did not increase their standard of living. They increased their standard of giving. And everything extra the Lord provided, they gave. That was their prayer. That was their desire to honor the Lord by giving him more. Now, I think in our reformed conservatism, we shy away from bold prayers like this sometimes. But we shouldn't. We're not saying God will do this or won't do this. That's up to him. But I wonder if our heart's desire might lead us to pray without presumption, without desire to fill in a few new budget categories for us or have a little extra security in our savings that the Lord would enable us to give more for the sake of His name. So the second principle is when it comes to giving beyond the tithe, we do so with prayer, out of a desire to do it sacrificially in light of God's character, but not with presumption. The final principle that jumps out to me in Proverbs 3 is that true joy comes from giving to our God, not from having for ourselves. As I think about it, this is the simplest message we tell our kids every year at Christmas, isn't it? We look at all the gifts around the tree and the materialism that's running amok at Christmas time, and we say, now remember, guys, Christmas is about giving, not about getting. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. A good parental, parental uh, soundtrack that repeats each Christmas. But I wonder if I believe this as an adult, that it is more blessed to give than to have. That true joy is found in giving, not in getting. Randy Alcorn hits on this point when he quotes 2 Corinthians 9, 7. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. But then he writes, he says, this does not mean that we give only when we're feeling happy about it. The cheerfulness and the joy often comes during and after the act of obedience, not before it. So if you wait until you feel happy about giving, it might be a long wait. We are to give in obedience and trust in the Lord and watch the joy follow. Do you hear the rhythm that's coming from God's word? Trust, obey, joy. We trust in the Lord with all our hearts. We obey the clear commands he has told us, not leaning on our own understanding. And then we rejoice when we see God's faithfulness and his character demonstrated again and again and again. As Patricia St. John shares it, that's exactly what happened in a country district of Syria about a century ago where Ralph and his wife went to preach the gospel. It was a poor area. Everyone was farmers. But a small church grew as people gave their lives to Jesus. But one summer, that church was pressed by a drought. One widow during that drought had a particular moment of rejoicing when ten chicks hatched. At once, she caught one of them and tied a piece of wool around its leg and said, This is the Lord's chicken, one-tenth of my produce. But her joy didn't last because her crops were poor in the drought. And as the chickens grew, the Lord's chicken grew better than all the rest. And as she looked at the chicken, she realized that's the one that would fetch the most money at the marketplace. 
And so she thought, I could give the Lord the scraggy chicken, not the best chicken. After all, Mr. Ralph just said to give one out of ten. And so one Sunday, she swapped the wool and marched to church with the scraggy chicken. Now as they came that morning to take communion before giving their offerings, they sang a hymn, I gave my life for you, my precious blood I shed, that you might ransomed be and quickened from the dead. I gave my life for you, what have you given for me? And the woman was cut to the heart. She stopped the service and she said to Ralph, He gave me so much and I only wanted to give him my worst. Please stop the service. Wait till I can go home. I want to give him my best. And off she ran. There was silence in the service. And then another said, Brother Ralph, I too need to go home. I have not given my tithe. Another said, I was afraid of the drought. I didn't see how I would have enough. And I have not given to the Lord for weeks. So Ralph stood up and said to the congregation, Let us not take communion this morning. Let us come back together tonight. Perhaps many of us have our gifts to bring. And so all afternoon, the people brought their tithes, their offerings to the church. Joy returned to the village. Christ's self-giving love seemed nearer than ever as they reconvened that night and sang, Lord, let my life be given and every moment spent for God, for souls, for heaven, and all earth ties be rent. You gave your all for me, now I give my all for you. Not one of these farmers was wealthy, they were all poor. But even in a year of drought, all was provided for, as they obeyed the Lord and brought their tithes, as they trusted the Lord and obeyed His command and experienced an overflow of joy as a result. So the question for each one of us is what are we leaning on? Are we leaning on our own understanding, doing what seems wise and safe and our good uh, uh, in, in our eyes? Or might we step out in faith, trusting God and in His Word? The key again is whether we trust His character. And He has given His all for us, sending even His own Son to die that we might be saved and have eternal life and glory with Him. Trust that God. Trust that character. Trust His Word that He has fulfilled over and over again. And if we do, we will be freed to honor the Lord with our wealth, with the best, with the first fruits of all that He provides, giving to Him what He commands in obedience, and giving beyond as He enables, that we might have straight paths from the Lord and overflowing joy in Him. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, You have told us about Your character and You have demonstrated Your character over and over again in Your Word as we look back in hindsight and see Your faithfulness. And we know there's many things we don't understand. There are things in our own lives that we don't see how they could work out or wonder what You're up to. There are times when we look at our budgets and think, how, Lord, could I possibly give some to You? And yet that's what you have called us to do, to honor you with the first portion. And you have promised us that if we obey you, our obedience will never lead us to be in want. And so I pray that you would free our hearts from our desires of this earth. Give us joy in obeying you. 
and enable us to step out in trust and in faith, desiring to give more as you've given all for us for the honor of your name, that you might fill us as a congregation with overflowing joy in our Savior. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.